Hey, you've got kids, right? I do. What do you uh, What do you do when you sit down at your desk and you see a uh, let's say a third eaten apple, and you know that's from this morning? Are you just is it is it just like time to get rid of that apple, or are you going to make yourself you know something out of that apple, a snack or something? Oof, I'm really bad about eating food after other people. For some reason, it kind of grosses me out. So, like, even my my kid will, like take a bite of something, like you can finish it. So. I'm probably not doing anything with that apple besides staring at it for a while and throwing it out. Yeah, not gonna yeah. eat it. I, I see. No, I, 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 it's a, it's a mental block I can't get over. It's, it's, you know, maybe my dog will eat this apple. I was gonna say it's yeah. too bad dogs don't eat things, but I think, uh, well, I mean, they eat things, eat fruits, but maybe it'll, uh, it's kind of crunchy. The dog might be confused. Although yeah. my, my dog has a, an odd habit. Like if you give the dog, let's say, a piece of bread that's maybe like two bites for a dog you know, like a sandwich, instead of eating it, she'll go and bury it somewhere, including the couch. So I don't, I don't really know what she thinks is going to happen in the future that she's going to want to go like things are going to get so bad. She's going to want to go into the backyard and dig up a sandwich that's probably weeks old to eat. Uh, But, you know, she's preparing, I guess. She's a survivalist. That's good. You know, for the worst. Exactly. Well, next uh is there any other weird food that the dog eats? Like my dog's like bananas. I don't know about you. Hmm. Any other? No, she's just, I think pretty, pretty normal. I'm mostly just shocked that, you know, one time we were out of dog food and uh, we made her a peanut butter sandwich because dogs like peanut butter. Right. And uh, that's when we discovered that she just won't eat a sandwich. She'll go bury it. (laughs) (laughs) Which Which is also a strange calculus. I wonder if there's a equivalent in humans where you're like, you know, I have, I'm hungry right now and I yeah. have this food in front of me, but I'm going to go bury it for later in case I'm hungry and there's not food. So I'm not really sure what, what that's about. That's kind of like the way my grandparents would save money on things instead of spending yeah. it now on something nice. They were uh, saving it for a rainy day. That seems really responsible. Yeah. That's good. Good depression era thinking back when you had to Our walk past. up hills both way. They would, they would rearrange the hills midday. <laughs> Yeah, just flip around. Uh-huh. <laughs> a regular oh. Rube Goldberg thing between between schools. Now she has your painting. Exactly. Good. Well, we're about a, a week away from uh, mm-hmm. Spring One Platform, our annual conference in Austin, okay. Texas. I think it's going to be great. What 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 uh what do you do in this last week when you're preparing for a conference like this? Now, never mind the the work for it. What do you do personally? Are, you know, are you uh, making a list of things to pack, checking it twice. What's on your agenda? I don't know. How far, how far do you pre-pack? Now you've got me curious. I'm usually a same-day packer. But um, no, I mean, we're you know buttoning up talks. I have a talk I'm doing. I actually should probably finish it. That would mm. be good to, to get ready for that. You and I are both presenting some things next week, I think, on Monday. Uh-huh. So I got to actually get that uh, kind of buttoned up. So yeah, kind of prep week. You know, I'm debating whether I write a little recap or not of the talks I'm looking forward to. I'm publishing that on my blog, things like that. Uh-huh. But yeah, Tighten it up. Now, now, the animals now, are ready to go. There's, there's a question for you. You know, uh, yeah. in 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 this content producing business that mm. that, that we get our, our hand, we're doing it right now. As a matter of fact, uh, but do you do you like do preparation work for like recap posts? Like, you know, you're like, all right, I'm going to write some uh, some text that I know I'm going to need so that I can publish this quickly. Uh, I don't do I don't do, I don't prepare like that. I mean, I'm thinking if I want to highlight the talks I'm interested in attending versus the uh, writing the obituary for the person who hasn't died yet sort of scenario. 
That's right. That's how that works. It was always creepy out. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it takes some imagination. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, I don't pack that far ahead of time. You know, the only thing I've packed ahead of time is, is I, I of course live in Amsterdam, but we have storage in Austin. So I was packing some things this weekend to take with me because my flight leaves like Saturday morning. So I think I'll, I think I'll bring some stuff that we don't use around here to put in storage. Uh, you know, a bunch of, you know, I've got those, I've gotten rid of most t-shirts I don't want, but I have a few t-shirts that I don't want to get rid of that I don't wear that are mm-hmm. just sentimental. And then, uh, I got a bunch of, uh, I got all my, my boots, my cowboy boots, which sadly they have holes in them because they're so old and that doesn't wow. work around here cause it's wet all the time. So, you know, you <laughs> yeah. can't have holes in your shoes. It's kind of yeah. charming if you're in a dry place where you got, you know, like, Oh, look at those. You've got tango and cash boots. And, you know, or is Tango and Cash the one with Don Johnson? No, that's, that's, uh, I think you're right. Not Turner and Hooch. Make sure you got your, your combos. There's some, I mean, to give a spoiler, there's some, uh, you know, there's some where I think Don, some movie where Don Johnson has some boots with duct tape on it and they're a joke. And then Mm. it ends up playing a pivotal part in a literal cliffhanger at the end of the, uh, the movie, as I recall. So you just, you just wear wooden shoes now, right? You're a guy. Yeah, because they float. How long do you uh do you think your kids like long after you're 90 and dead are going to go through and just find a bunch of t-shirts you could never get rid of cuz I feel feel that like oh, I just yeah. moved I just moved probably a dozen t-shirts that I'll never wear again but I just have a sentimental attachment to. Yeah, I think I think they'll they'll find some old t-shirts of mine but and and a bunch of like USB devices of just like <laughs> you know this seemed like a really cool USB device. You 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 plug it in and it lights up. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. I, why does dad have so many hard drives? Like yeah. it's just like I couldn't get rid of them. I don't know. There, there was a there was a good let's say five to ten year period where I collected USB thumb drives. It was just fun because right. when those first came out in the mid two thousand, I was like, you know, what a time to be alive! Look at this. It's a little hard drive on this thing here, and uh, I forget. It might have been when we were moving or a year before that. I had this shoebox, and I was like, all right, I just gotta I gotta get rid of these. So I, I laboriously went through and copied all the files off of them into yeah. a little Dropbox thing and then got rid of them. And, and then, and then sure enough, I'm holding one in my hand right now. So I still have them that follow me around yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Although look, listen, I should take a picture. This one's super cool. It's this little mm-hmm. Dell one that I saw at a Dell world once. So of course I grabbed like five of them and it's like super thin and it's got this metal sleeve that folds over and then it says Dell on it. So, I mean, of course you want that, right? Isn't that a- nice? And of course, this year's spring one is swagless because we we care about not just uh, filling bags with goodies, but filling heads with knowledge. So mm. don't get any uh, you don't get any tchotchkes. My uh, my sixty year old children who are emptying my uh, collection, they, they'll appreciate. It. They'll look back on this year, twenty nineteen, yeah. as the year that well, Dad didn't have a USB drive that was branded. That'll no, be- it's going to be like you know archaeologists are. Uh, with the people going through like the strata in the rock, like why is there miss something missing in this era? <laughs> That's going to bring on platform in 2019. A bunch of garbage on both sides, but this one, I don't you, know, it was a fire, something. You can tell this is when, when uh, conferences stopped having swag. I was at DevOps days London last week and that was a theme. They encouraged us to be that way. So, so we, nice. we, the pivotal people rolled up with minimal swag. Meanwhile, other people mm-hmm. seem to have not gotten the memo, which is, which is a bummer, but yeah. you know, what are you going to do? First, first mover moral advantage or something. Right. Well, I was thinking we should go over a few like just little uh, spring one platform things. And then also we haven't talked in a while, so we can kind of catch up on things we've been doing. But as always, 
we got a few news items going going uh, going on here. What what's what's been happening that catches your eye? Yeah, it was a few things I thought highlight that uh, our audience might care about. So we think about initializers, the spring initializer, obviously uh, one of the more popular places on the internet for developers is there's a million and a half or so projects created there per month for spring boot developers. They go there, they pick all their options, they click generate, gives them a download. Now their project's ready to go. There's been some nice updates to that. Now it's really easy to not have to download a project. If you just want to browse what it would look like, because you want to steal it for a project you already have. And you can even share now. So you can get a link that you could share with another developer, put it on a wiki somewhere that says, hey, click this link to bootstrap this whole web project now. So that's pretty cool. And then our team spun up a steel toe initializer for .NET dev. So if you go to start.steeltoe.io, you can actually bootstrap a uh, .NET project, which is pretty neat as well. Next time I was thinking about it was .NET Core 3.0 ship last week. So this is the next big version of .NET. So you get new language stuff. If you're doing JSON support, which if you're doing web apps, you're probably doing that. That's great. Some more containerization support for Docker containers, more friendly there. And if you like building Windows Forms and Windows Presentation Foundation, you are a happy camper because now you can do that with .NET Core. Now, is that is that the is that the like GUI way of doing things? It is. I think that's the first way I was really building stuff when .NET came out. It was like, hey, here's Visual Basic, and I can drag and drop a button. And I can do all this stuff. Mm. So that was left out of .NET Core for these last few years. And it was like, hey, if you want to build Windows Forms, you use .NET Framework on Windows. But now you can use .NET Core so that uh, you don't have to rely on Framework anymore for that. Right, now, now, would you say... Are you? Do you reminisce about the GUI days, or are you glad those are uh, sort of over? I guess you have mobile things, but like I don't know. What's what's your? I never really did GUI programming, so I don't know what the feels are around it. There was something gratifying about seeing the work. I mean, I don't know. Building a RESTful web service doesn't I don't think, give you that same kick as like mm. here's a button I just like that loads a you know loads data or puts an image up there. So there was something about instant gratification of front-end design. It, obviously, we now satisfy with web design. So it's not like we're all building back-end components all the time. Yeah. But no, I mean, look, I don't know what's on your desktop. I do have a, the dedicated Slack app. I do have, you know, dedicated Trello app, or I have dedicated apps for things that are also web versions, because sometimes it's nice to have a desktop version. So like, not like desktop development's dead, although clearly most of our work's in the browser now. Yeah, that's true. There's plenty of desktop. And then and then really, the uh, the stuff you do on your phone, that, that usually is a GUI, it seems like, yeah. or at least it might as well be. Huh. That's right. Yeah. So meanwhile, what's what's the uh, the Lambda networking change? What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, it's self-promotional since I wrote it up for InfoQ, but it was also good news, uh, which was, uh, so I mean, up until now, if you were building Lambda functions in Amazon, you know, these serverless functions, and you were using a virtual private cloud, which is how most enterprises are adopting public cloud, they use like perimeter security, they wrap up in a private network, their all their stuff, and it's not internet accessible, you got a VPN in whatever. But Lambda always sits outside of that. So that VPN or that VPC kind of had to bridge over to your VPC. It would create a new network connection for each function. And if it's a cold function, it hasn't been warmed up. It would have to instantiate a network connection, meaning when you have Lambda functions talking to, let's say, your database, your line of business app in your VPC, you could have this really longer cold start. And so it's kind of prohibitive. Like, all right, I'm not going to use Lambda functions with my own systems uh, it's just it's kind of painful. I'll just use it with other stuff that's on the internet, and that's fine. But what they made a change of is they kind of create a persistent connection now when you instantiate your function in the first place, and so you don't pay that tax anymore. Mm. So if I'm trying to do serverless stuff on line of business systems in my private network, I'm really only incurring the cold start time of actually booting up the function, not doing all that network bridging stuff, which is pretty cool. 
Yeah, has has serverless stuff gotten uh, sophisticated enough yet where they charge a different tier for fast versus slow? No, although, I mean, the other thing I linked to in the same kind of sentence that I put in our show notes was, uh, you know, another analysis that blew up last week of like, hey, it cost me a lot more to do serverless, which is mm. counterintuitive because, the you know, the message now is like, hey, this is the cheaper way to do stuff, get with it. But that for certain workloads and certain kind of usage profiles, you still have to stitch together a lot of pieces with their own micro billing components, gateways and storage and functions and this and that. So sometimes it's cheaper just to run a VM. Sometimes it's cheaper to use a pad. Sometimes it's that reminder that there's probably not one abstraction to rule them all. Like it probably doesn't make sense to say it's all going to be serverless. It's all going to be this, all going to be that. You know, there's still we're still not at a place where I think any normal company, normal person is going to try to fit everything in that model. Yeah, wasn't there? And I suppose isn't there. There was, there was some kind of like cloud compute thing that like you like you never really knew when it would execute and therefore it was like cheaper or you were like bidding on things or you kind of like use leftover oh. compute space or something. Right. Yeah, there was that that kind of model for spot instances. There you things, go. Which yeah, yeah, yeah. Most clouds do that where you can, yeah, you'd almost bid on it and hey, once it goes above this price, they'll just shut it down. Yeah. And so if I'm doing like crazy MapReduce stuff or I'm doing just kind of bulk computing and I can lose nodes, it's fine. But again, I think if you walk into most enterprises going, hey, your compute may or may not be online at any given time, like that's not going to run a majority of your stuff. It's going to be certain types of jobs. Yeah, that, that's, 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 a, uh, that's a cloud service in need of some marketing, if that's uh, the, the, the way they pitch it. That's right. <laughs> this, this, this is an unreliable service that's affordable. But that might describe most enterprise IT. Uh, in in many cases, anyways, just yeah, no, no natural manifestation. That That's right. Yeah. So, you know, we're gonna and we'll cover some more serverless stuff at Spring One next week as well. So again, I'm still bullish on the model. Frankly, I prefer it to a lot of other ones. But you know, I try and also be a realist, especially when you and I talk to a lot of large companies and a lot of people who listen to this podcast who look at their line of business systems, look at what they already have running, look at the fact they're spending maybe ten to twenty percent a year of their budget on innovation type work. And the idea of saying like, hey, everything's going to be serverless is like maybe in 20 years, because mm. by the time I would actually change all my apps or the, the time that SAP or Siebel would work nicely with functions, like we got a ways to go. Yeah, I was talking with someone who works in government IT last week and they were yeah. uh, I, I don't cl- follow serverless stuff as close as I don't know if it's I should. I don't follow it that closely, but uh, <laughs> I was asking him, like, what would you use this stuff for? And he was he was saying, well, we use a lot of uh, just like microsoft office and just a lot of excel and word docs and there might be a point where like it makes sense to like call out to serverless stuff to do things and 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 with the point of allowing people to keep using excel as a ui instead of shifting them to some other things and then you could uh link in some i don't know more programmed services on the back end rather than just like macros and weird calls to things which i don't know that seems interesting Maybe someone will do that kind of back to GUIs as we were talking about <laughs> earlier. That's right. So then also, also in uh, cloud world, it looks like Microsoft uh, launched a, I always forget what SIEM stands for, but uh, I, wanted you, I wanted you to say it first. I, I think it's even pronounced SIM, but I, I sometimes SIM. say it wrong myself, SIM. but it's a, uh, what does it stand for? It stands for security information and event management. So Ooh. kind of suck in a bunch of information, uh-huh. do things, you know, gather all this data, you analyze it, you look for anomalies, you try to figure out if there's a security problem. And that's been a mature space for a while. I just thought this was interesting because now Microsoft entering this with their new GA service, Azure Sentinel, which sounds, uh, I guess, scary, that 
it hooks into all the usual Azure stuff, so Office 365 and cloud stuff. So it's going to be pretty compelling. It's the usual cloud kind of pay-per-use sort of thing might disrupt kind of the more slow-moving on-prem sort of systems or ones that don't have sophisticated machine learning that Microsoft has advantages in. So anyway, it's an interesting entry into the market. But public cloud providers keep doing this, right, where they offer really useful stuff that messes around with the rest of the market. This feels like the next one. Yeah, it, it, it'll be... Uh... You know, I, I remember talking with, a, a, as we used to call it, systems management vendor that structurally deals with the same thing as a uh, SIM, right? Like just a whole bunch of information that's always coming at you that you have to analyze and make some conclusion about so someone can take an action uh, right. or go to lunch. Uh, and, uh, you know, the thing that they always bump up against and when I used to work on this was just like the sheer amount of data that you have to deal with and analyze and... uh with sort of on-premise traditional things, you just kind of run out of compute that's affordable. And so it's yeah. it's always interesting to see if you centralize it in a cloud somewhere, what you do with that, especially when it comes to applying machine learning things. Because I get the I get the feeling that a lot of like uh machine learning or AI ops or whatever, like it just seems like it's gonna hit some wall if it's all done on premise that you wouldn't have uh hosted somewhere. Which you're I mean, I think you're right on the compute side, definitely, because you start just starving for compute and then the storage, right, is when do I choose to throw out stuff? Do I just have to start summarizing data because I can't store all the raw data that now the tricky thing is every public cloud makes it so easy to keep data forever and copy it everywhere. But that's not free. So at the same time, like it's amazing, but I don't know if most most folks are budgeting for never ending infinite storage yeah it's like that shoebox full of usb drives it seems free <laughs> yeah, right. but it takes up space and time That's right. at, least, at least in your head yeah yeah there's always some delightful things to discover on those though from you know years ago oh yeah goodness gracious i'm finding resumes from like 2001 or here's like this <laughs> this project i thought was super important i forgot about there oh yeah all those, all those great things mm, all the usb drives well as mentioned yeah. we've got uh we've got spring one platform coming up next week october 7th and 10th Probably if you're listening to this, you've already registered or you're not going to, or it's already happening, but that's fine. There's a, if you haven't registered, there's, there's a code you can use for $200 off. But, you know, if there's time, you should definitely come to it. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be in Austin. I think, uh, I was supposed to write up a guide for my European friends about going to Austin, but I didn't. I, however, there were several emails sent about recommendations of places to go. And I think we've, we've answered those. And, uh, let's see, we got, I, I, I know you, you've, you've helped on things. I've helped curate talks for the, uh, the DevOps track and the leadership track and a little, not really on the Kubernetes track, but I looked at it. I think I was just a secondary concern there. And we got, uh, some analysts come in workshops. There's a little executive event that we're doing. There's even, if you're, if you're from, uh, EMEA, we've got a happy hour you can come to. Wow. And, and Tell be me, happy. Uh, I mean, you glossed over just there, but this is the first year we've done a leadership track, right? I think so. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I we, we've had similar things, but like specifically calling out like this is uh, not necessarily about technology stuff or case studies. But here's some uh, here's some thought technologies uh, to apply to leadership things. So when I when I was looking through things, I was trying to get, you know, a lot of them are from uh, from uh, customers, if you will, or people who have done things. But I've tried to make sure we have some talks that go over uh not only how to do the, the ch usual change management, but for example, there's a couple of product management and uh, design based ones where 
more so sat well, not more so, but like partly satisfying my curiosity of like what does it mean to do leadership with product management in an enterprise con context? And I think um for you know, actually if you're listening to these podcasts in order, it's uh the one maybe right before this I was talking uh with uh Alexandra about this topic, the talk she's gonna be giving. And uh, you know, I think there's a lot of product management talk when it comes to us uh, software vendors doing it, but I don't hear that much about uh, doing it in the enterprise, uh, as it were. And then there's a panel on design that has someone from USAA on it and uh, a couple of other design people. That will be interesting to see how you sort of uh, lead design, uh, if you will. But I was I was looking through uh, all of the talks uh, earlier, and and I have to say. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick one that just for, for totally sentimental reasons, I'm very interested in. On Thursday at 1230, there's one Mm -hmm. called Drive-In Meets Digital, modernizing a classic customer experience from our friends at Sonic, where they, uh, you know, I love, I love a Sonic burger. That reminds me of one of my favorite David Sedaris things where he's, he's in Paris and on a subway and he's making fun of, of some, some young Americans there and they're like, boy, I sure could use a Sonic burger right now. And I think, I think that expresses a sentiment many of us have at least once a week. You could just use a Sonic burger and a, uh, and a slushie. That would be great. I think I'm going to go get one of those now when I'm yeah, back you really, in town. I know you've messed me up now for the morning. I'm hungry. Yeah. Uh, but no, that, that, that was a good looking one. It's funny how many of these you almost want to attend because you're actually familiar with the company. Like, oh, I want to hear how this company that I depend on does stuff. Yeah, and it's interesting. We actually, have so many customers and just enterprises presenting stuff. It's like, wow, I actually need them to be good at this because if Comcast stinks at technology, my kids yell at me when I can't get an on-demand movie. <laughs> like, I need them to be good at this. Or the healthcare companies or Dicks down the corner from me, uh-huh. right? Your insurance provider. Like, it's, it's all interesting stuff. That even to your point, like, there's a sentimental attachment to Sonic. Like, I'll go hear their talk. I don't even care what they're talking about. Like, I just want to hear what they talk. about. Yeah. Yeah, it would, like you know, every now and then, uh, Air France KLM has a talk, and I fly on I fly on KLM all the time, so I'm very very interested to see how they're improving things around there. It's, yeah, uh, it's a, the power of a familiar brand is 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 really nice. How about you? What are you What are you looking forward to? Yeah, I mean, I'm always you know, again, I think that leadership stuff's interesting because you don't, I don't know, I've, we've I've done what this is my third or fourth spring one, and again, I, my first year, I, I had did no Java from a, a hole in the head for the most part. And I've learned spring over the last few years and things like that. But this really has turned into a conference. If you have no interest in Java, you would actually really still enjoy this conference because there's a lot of, as you say, leadership stuff, Kubernetes stuff, event-driven architecture stuff, .NET stuff, tons of cl- things there. So it's really an interesting all-up tech conference at this point. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a couple that are org transformation-y and specifically like how you get over the hump. Since again, that continues to come up in a lot of talks that I have with people that, yep, sounds good for incubation. Again, how do I keep scaling this? The uh, reactive stuff's taken a good leap forward over the last year. Last year at Spring One, we announced a lot of reactive things like, hey, we talked about our socket and we talked about R2DBC, which is not a robot on Star Wars, and a number of other reactive things. But all that stuff's matured now. So we've actually had, you know, just today, I think Spring Framework 5.2 shipped with new R socket support for reactive messaging kind of uh, event messaging between components. The the stuff we've been doing with reactive database stuff has matured, all the web flux stuff. So I just want to learn more there, try to get a little more understanding of why I care about that. 
And then finally, some of the building platform teams helping the SDLC. That stuff, again, intrigues me because I'm always fascinated how big companies figure out how to use tech at the right time, how to speed up mm. developers. All that stuff we take for granted when I just read Hacker News every day. So looking forward to those kind of talks. And then the main stage, you know, uh, Dormain Drewitz, the host of the podcast in the alternate weeks, is running the main stage, which means she's going to do tremendously better than I did the last two years. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but she's put together an awesome lineup. You know, I've seen some previews of what we're going to be talking about and sharing. And I don't know, to me, I don't know about you, Cote, but for me, clearly there's a transaction looming here with VMware. And I think there's a, an interesting chance to maybe bookend Pivotal at this conference. Like what has our impact been? What's been, uh, take a step back. Sure. What have we contributed to this industry for the last six years? What have we moved forward? Did we transform how the world built software? I don't know. Some of it we did. And yeah. maybe taking a step back, I think is kind of a cool moment here. Yeah. Well, I think, I think structurally like the, the mixture of, uh, business stuff and nerd stuff it kind of shows like the uh the way the way things uh have been affected by by pivotal work which is nice that you have those two things together now now more importantly you know previous yeah. year like last year there was there was some costuming going on some little quick changes of the, of the mcs is there i don't want anything revealed but do you think there might be some uh, costume changes this year that could occur gosh i don't know if i'm rooting for that this year that was pretty pretty wild last year uh yeah i don't know it's gonna be like the what it's going to be? Are going to get horse heads or anybody going to be dressed up in anything fancy? I haven't seen any sneak peeks though of crazy costume changes. No, no <laughs> acting heads. like share up there. That you know? that would be funny if there was a classic two person horse that came walking up. That's. Uh... I mean, again, I would find it better if no one acknowledged it. Like just walk out as the horse and, uh -huh, and, and get undressed and then just trot off uh -huh. like this. All right, that was a horse. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Well, uh, well. Also, since last time we talked, you did a yeah. uh, you did a webinar with uh, Nicole from uh, the DevOps. What does Dora stand for? I always forget. DevOps uh, Research A. Yeah, yeah. There's 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 a bunch of things in there. Don't put me on the spot. But uh, uh, but how did how did I? I have to admit I haven't watched that webinar yet. But uh, how did it go? What 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 was an interesting sort of like uh, insight or idea that came out of that webinar that you didn't have beforehand? Yeah, I mean, the state of DevOps report that uh, Nicole does, and she had some other folks, again, helping out this year, putting this together. I think everyone looks forward to this every year. I know I do, just because it's a, another state of kind of grounded information about these practices. It's not just feelings. It's not just, well, I saw this on a project once. This is a, you know, obviously rigorous method for figuring out what are the outcomes that come from some of these practices. So, you know, it's always a pleasure to get to do with this with uh Dr. Forsgren this is the second straight year we've done it together. And so, you know, there's some good movement in sort of elite performance and this and that. But the one thing that stood out for me, and you should watch the webinar, I think it was our fifth most popular one of the year. But she did some analysis as well and figuring out what are the sort of practices that actually positively and negatively kind of improve org performance. Like mm -hmm. if you start thinking about, all right, so continuous delivery, kind of what feeds into that? What is actually a predictor of success there? Is it Again, things like monitoring, loosely coupled architectures, trunk-based development, deployment automation, yes. So heavyweight change process actually shows, you know, statistically to have a negative impact on software delivery performance. Or so it was actually, I think, starting to again try to tie this stuff together, not just, hey, this is why we should do source control management this way. This is why we should pay down technical debt. This is and if I'm in enterprise IT and I've always felt like I'm fighting upstream because no one believes my 
crazy you know software suggestions to be able to start to have this sort of information that says yes look it's negatively correlated to do x and y here's the data behind it here's the sort of research behind it it would just seem like this is a relief to a mm. lot of people who are trying to champion change and feeling like they're just fighting the inertia of just the way we've always done it yeah yeah you know like tech that's always an interesting thing it's uh it's 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 sort of like it's a good test of if people believe the developers <laughs> right in in the sense of like you know it's common sense to uh, architects and developers that like the the more the more corners you cut and things you don't up, update and things like that uh it's going to slow you down in the future and you'll tell people that and and i don't know if it's that they don't believe it or they don't have time to think about it and then like a few years later it's like yeah we can't really change anything effectively or quickly because i told you that 2 years ago but you didn't believe it whereas i would imagine in like i don't know bridge building or what's something even less important than bridge building like you know novelty usb drive creation is probably like you know <laughs> if 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 we uh, if we set up the factory to create only this type of usb drive instead of being able to vary it if we only create blue ones the next time someone wants to order an orange one we're not going to do well and they're like i don't know we got to ship these blue ones just make it do the blue ones and it just seems like as a terrible analogy but no but i mean that's that's not awful i just think i mean even where i live there's a lot of two lane roads because mm -hmm. it was a backwater 25 years ago and now everyone <laughs> seems to be moving this way and so did you kind of take on debt in the first time going look i don't need four lanes like i can just go one lane each way and now it's going to be a real pain in the neck and shut down areas for six months to widen the, the road. I don't know. Are those debt? Are those just kind of what some people say realistically? Sometimes tech debt's just smart to take in the first place because it's an MVP. Maybe I don't want to over engineer this. I don't want to bring in four database types and purposely decouple all my code because it might be a garbage idea. And now mm. I've just wasted months when I just really need to prove a concept. So sometimes I take on debt on purpose, just like in real life, you take on a mortgage, you borrow, you know, borrow money for a car. You know, and our, our colleague Dormain's done a great talk on kind of the kind of the positive side sometimes of taking on debt. But then to your point, sometimes you're actually purposely taking shortcuts or even accidentally, and that still holds you back. So how are you at least going to pay that down at some point so you're not completely constrained? Even this research, again, that the Dora and, and the team have done, I think it just starts to shine a light on what are examples of tech debt, like insufficient test coverage, incomplete migrations, obsolete tech. Like these are things that are eventually really going to bite you mm. and you either try to do it all at once. or you kind of keep this continuous modernization mindset, which I'm seeing maybe more people talk about a little more and more than just these big bang migration projects, but treating dead is something you're always addressing, not just on emergencies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know that. So speaking of that's, that's some yeah. other work, uh, somewhat related to, to some work I've been doing recently that, uh, that I collectively call the, uh, the business bottleneck. Although I have to say, Maybe I should just call it the bottleneck. But I like this idea of saying like, oh, the business has has some alignment, <laughs> some alignment issues. But there's a, a a webinar me and another pivotal guy, Rick Clark, have coming up uh, later this Hi. week. Where that's basically part one of uh, of the business bottleneck. And you know, the tech debt thing is a good example of that. Where we don't really go over this necessarily, but it's uh, I don't know a way of saying this that doesn't sound like, you know, the nerds getting upset, but it's sort of like, well, there's, there's sort of business people making decisions about what to do with technology without fully understanding not only limitations, but like what's possible with it. And like the, I started thinking about this idea one, because everyone's all like, you know, the culture is a problem and, 
and uh, I have to deal with finance and things like that. And it seems like there's a, in its best case, where you've got your your product teams or your developers deploying their software weekly and they can validate it and course correct and be a tech company. Like I always wonder, like, if you have that set up, does that just fix all the problems of a business or of an organization or does the business side need to do uh, need to do something like, you know, what we usually recommend is, as we were talking about earlier, like you have a product manager, which is not necessarily a technical person, but someone who kind of like is responsible for the product and the and the business. And I don't get the sense that in aggregate that role exists so much. So there's some sort of uh, misalignment going on. So I've been working on like a, a a book on that topic, which which uh, I should finish at some point, uh, especially since there's more or less a deadline now. But we have a, we got a webinar. It's a couple of days from now, and I think what we're going to do in this first part is uh, just kind of lay out some three key areas of misalignment. And then uh, the week after next, we'll uh, we'll tell you all the solutions. We'll magically solve them. But more seriously, we'll just kind of paint a picture of what, uh, you know, some possible ways to fix it. And I, the three areas so far that we've settled on is how uh, how the, the, the annual cycle of finance and strategy, and also just kind of a mistrust of how they, they like to fund uh, IT projects, how that's kind of a, an annoyance. And then this is the next one is one that that Rick thinks of a lot, which is basically how uh, the way that compensation is done, not only straight up pay, but other things creates all sorts of problems. And he put it, and I, you know, this is probably uh, kind of touched on, or at least, uh, uh, I don't know, tangentially related to some, some DevOps report stuff that if, uh, if you've got this independent autonomous product team, that's supposed to be acting as one and, uh, you know, owning the team and working together. And yet if everyone gets paid based on individual conversations and their bonuses are based on individuality and their career is based on what they do as an individual, that doesn't seem like a recipe for, uh, coolness. And even more broadly, right? Like the, uh, the business side gets compensated when, uh, the business is successful, when there's revenue and, they can uh, they can do things with the business and IT gets compensated when they have good uptime, which means you don't want to change things very often. So something at the macro and micro level of compensation is a little wacky of, of how things work. And it gives you uh, misaligned incentives uh, to behave. Right. And I don't know. I remember encountering this. People would literally say, uh, you know, there's no reason for me to help this other person because <laughs> because like I get my bonus based on my performance. So mm-hmm. teamwork doesn't really apply here, which, which is a bummer. And then I think, I think more broadly, there's two more points. And the one is kind of what I was indicating is like these, uh, these two entities, they don't really seem to work on the same team so often. There's usually like proxies and project managers and things like that rather than, you know, I was thinking way back in 1999 in the extreme programming book, it, it more or less says right there when you're working on the internal Chrysler. HR system. You need to have someone from HR who uses the system in the room with the developers uh, going yep. over stuff. And um, one, uh, you know, who remembers that? <laughs> and and then and then two, like I'm not sure that's even practiced very widely afterwards. Which I don't know. We'll we'll see how we play around with that. But I figure like if uh, if people are doing things on a weekly basis, they need some input from the business side. At least they come up with wacky flying cars. And, uh, and things like that. But that's a little bit of overview of the webinar and, and the work in general. And, uh, also Rick and I will be doing a little talk, I think, to open up the leadership, leadership track going over these, uh, these concepts as well. 
which nice. which will be delightful. And there's I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But uh, I've got just like I did for my uh, monolithic transformation book. I have the uh, the draft that I'm working on just available for people to look at, which is is actually handy because then I get a lot of reviews from people. Anyone who <laughs> anyone who takes the time to read through it and leave a comment is probably has something useful to say and uh, and interesting. And uh, so so that would be great if uh, people are into that. But I think that's uh, has, has, has anything else notable been going on since last we talked seven months ago? <laughs> uh, you know, besides, uh, again, working with our friends at Dell and VMware on, on some upcoming things and we have VMworld uh, Europe coming up, which I'll be going out to in Barcelona. So, uh, yes, yeah, just a lot of this is, you know, continuing to accelerate what Pivotal's up to. We create some, you know, great new content on the blog. Obviously, always the webinar is coming out. So keeping busy on this stuff. I'm interested, Kote, you had mentioned kind of some of the incentives and, you know, hey, people not working together in this and that. In your kind of travails and research and journeys, do you do you kind of land on what are good cross-functional metrics that actually align people? Is it come down to like business success? Because, hey, we're all aligned on this product, making this much money or getting this many users. And I don't care if you're in IT or HR or this or that. How do you make sure people do feel like they should work together? Yeah, I think this is one of those areas that there's not enough actual stuff being done to say anything conclusive. Mm. <laughs> However, uh, yeah, I think I think in general, like if you the the little anecdotes and things I hear here and there is that if if you reward people in aggregate, like at the team level, then not only is that possible, but things go better, right? And the mechanics of what that looks like are kind of situational for what you have, right? Like that's part of the 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 bottleneck or the misalignment is like you have to go to HR and be like, hey, about the way we give people money. Yeah. <laughs> and and really work on the way you change that around. And I think I think the other thing, and this isn't exactly a match to that, but I, I do I do hear about interesting ways of using like OKRs and, and things like that versus like traditional performance metrics. And that, that being the, the, the way that I, I hear about OKRs being used differently is more, it gives you, it, it, it gives you almost a chance to correct. What am I trying to say? There's almost this notion that we don't quite know if this is what we want to happen with an OKR. Like built into it is this test of a theory to like, this kind of like uh, provisionalness of it. So it's different to say like over the next like 30 days or 60 days, which is a short period of time in the first place, right? Like we're going to test out, this is something we're going to try to see if it is actually works and also to push ourselves do it. And I'm reading a little bit too much theoretic stuff and do a classic OKR, but you can kind of do it that way versus like, you know, uh, more classic metrics that you would use, which is like, I don't know, I'm going to bring in 50 units of awesome right or or i am going to do the following things or even worse uh something that is like vague and not metricable like i am going to uh mentor my team to perform better and align with the corporate values <laughs> which is like at the end of like an annual cycle of looking through those metrics like what do you do with those things you just like yeah. that's it, it's, it's very subjective so there's some of those things i see but that, that also reminds me well, you'll be gallivanting with uh, our VMware friends. I'm going to be over at the uh, Gartner IT Expo slash Symposium trademark uh, in Barcelona. And 
there's someone from Daimler that I'm doing a uh, fireside chat with over lunch. And this is exactly the kind of topic that uh, we're planning on, on discussing. Like she, she heads up the uh, Mercedes hyphen bins.io organization mm-hmm. uh, with several hundred people there. And they have a, I can never say it correctly. How do you pronounce it? Heliocracy. Heliocracy. There you go. And uh, I, I was always terrible in ancient Greek, uh, yeah. but like, uh, you know, she, her, she brought up several points uh, that kind of have informed a little bit of my thinking about business misalignment, which is uh, one, how does that function and how do people manage their careers and how do you incent people to act kind of in a more of a flat organization where they're, they're equals uh, rather than not. So hopefully we'll uh, hash that out. But yeah, this, uh, I think, I think this, this topic Anytime I talk a lot about something, it means it's an interesting unknown topic. Otherwise, I would be brief and talk about burgers and stuff instead. But uh, I think this topic is like very underexplored. And it, it was also reminding me, there's speaking of Nicole, Dr. Dr. Nicole, uh, mm-hmm. she, you know, when she worked at Chef, she actually gave a she had a presentation kind of on this topic, like how you how you create metrics for performance for staff performance of people in DevOps teams. And I remember, I remember watching that and thinking like, this is not relevant to my interest, like about DevOps or whatever. This is just how you, this is HR stuff. And when I was kind of writing up this part of the misalignment stuff, I was like, aha, now that's interesting. And I need to go back (laughs) and and watch those because it was keyed around exactly this point. How do you put together metrics and career development, which uh, seems highly relevant. No, it's a great topic. I, I finished the book over the summer, Project Product. And again, Mick Kirsten is over in your neck of the woods or your continent. Uh, was talking about, again, how do you align around product teams and what are those, those measurements that kind of cross the teams and the streams and whether you're looking at quality and business outcomes. And there's a number of things that's actually a whole flow framework that he calls out there. It's a great book that, again, if you're trying to think about how to orient around products and how to measure success of products and actually you know split up your work and things like that actually have communication across the different functions where everyone speaks the same language. That was, that was good content. So hopefully we're seeing more people talk about this now that people are actually trying this at scale. Yeah. I should go reread that book. That's probably for me, one of those, I need to read it in one settings book. Cause I, you know, it it was a good book, but I I didn't, I never got as much out of it as everyone else seems to. So I Mm. must've been uh, in a bad mood or something. It's probably that red eye flight back to. That's right. I just yeah. I just remember some lengthy descriptions of the of the the factories to make cool cars and uh yes. but there were other things in there going on. There were. Yeah. I was thinking like this is just a very elaborate way to expense buying a car. <laughs> yeah. This is actually how you get to spend a week in the BMW factory yeah, like I, just, I have to I have to be here for my work. That's that's why I'm here. Just got to go check some emails and then go check out the car manufacturing. But I did it Yeah, did, but even then, you do this well, too. I mean, I, I like when people try to bring in, maybe not our technical debt, tortured metaphors, but when people are actually <laughs> trying to connect some of these real-life things, like an actual auto factory and how they extend and how they can, you know, elevate the bottleneck and they look at constraints. Like, that's, I think, for most people, a lot simpler than trying to describe how the IT, you know, quality team slows down software delivery. Like, it's just different. So I like when people try to pull it in from different disciplines. That helps me personally. So it's a... Uh, yeah, go visit the BMW factory. Mm. Well, I think maybe the last thing. Speaking of books, I'm not done reading it, but I always like uh, I always like the Professor Rita McGrath. She, uh, 
I forget the name of her last book that I really like, but you just go look it up. But she has a new book that I've been reading called, uh, I think it's Seeing Around Corners. And uh, it's, it's, it's perhaps a tad too business booky uh, versus academic, but uh, well, whatever. And, and I think, I think so far I'm about halfway through and I think, I think she has a good framing, you know, we're basically ever since, uh, let me see, ever since like the, those two engineers formed, uh, you know, BCG, and then you went over to Michael Porter, like there's been this, this kind of like refining of what strategy is, but then more importantly, like the, the toolkit that strategists use. That's, that's always the difficult part is like, well, strategy has two difficult parts. One is the toolkit that you use reliably. And two is getting anyone to listen to you. (laughs) 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 And, uh, like, um, so she, her, she, she has a further refinement of, of the idea of, of how to respond or protect yourself from disruption, whether you want to make it uppercase or lowercase D and and I think the 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 crux of what she goes over so far is that instead of thinking about like the industry you operate in as a well defined market that has you know your, you and your competitors this you know a Michael Porter view of it where you've got your suppliers and your competitors and your customers and it all fits together on that like nice Chevron way of doing things that instead what you do is to use her words you think of an arena. And any sort of thing can enter the arena and not necessarily even compete with you directly, directly, but they can also redefine what the market is and the basis of competition and, you know, so forth and so on. And, and instead, the thing you center around is like the notion of like a job to be done, which is like the thing you're, the problem you're solving for your customer. And then it gets a little like, this is one of those areas where like things get a little abstract experience wise, where like at some point, you don't want to necessarily think that like I'm Netflix and the arena I operate in is how people spend their leisure time. Cause the next thing you know, you're buying bike companies and like, you know, things like that, that they spend their leisure time in, but whatever. It's just sort of like the way people spend their attention and uh, the job they're hiring yep. you for. And if someone else can do it and even more like uh, concretely, I always think of it as like share a wallet, right? Like people have a limited amount of money to spend and uh, you would prefer they spend more of it with you than with other other people. And so you've got to somehow uh, battle that out. But she has some interesting uh, sort of frameworks and tactics, a toolkit to uh, to use to kind of try to see around corners, to find the inflection points, as she says. So uh, so there's a couple of books for you all listeners yeah. to, to find your time with. And, uh, you know, as always, this has been Pivotal Conversations. If you want to... Uh, see the past episodes. We have a whole slew of interviews with uh, people who are speaking at Spring One Platform across several topics. There's one that I, I mentioned about uh, about product management and our friend uh, Mark Heckler has interviews that are very uh, spring and uh, sort of technical oriented if you, you want to uh, take a gander at those. And remember next week, October 7th to 10th in Austin, Texas, Spring One Platform where we will be and I'm sure we'll talk about it afterwards. But if you want to see all those past episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash Pivotal Conversations, and they'll all be there for you. And uh, the show notes, which we, which we keep referring to, will be posted at pivotal.io slash podcast. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.